Well, good morning again, Central. Thank you for four or five of you who said good morning back. Appreciate that. Um, man, I'm excited to continue our series in Ruth. We're gonna be in Ruth chapter three in just a moment. Um, I'm excited for this passage. There's a lot underneath the surface that's going on here, so I'm excited to really work through it with you this morning. Um, but Central, as I was preparing this week, um, a few of you guys know this. Probably two or three weeks ago now, I, I had the opportunity to get out of town for about eight or nine days. Jess's family about once a year goes on vacation, and, and it's really interesting. There's 10 adults, three kids, one on the way. It, it's a lot of people for a space. Typically, Toward the end of the week, we're like, I'm really glad this happened, but I'm kind of glad it's over too. But I remember the, the days and the weeks leading up to this trip being pretty excited about disconnecting and getting away and unplugging. And my expectations were high, my excitement was high. And I was having a conversation with our kids director, Allison Loveland, and she said this to me. She said, Chris, your daughter is a year and a half. With a kid, it's not really a vacation, it's more of a trip. And I said, thank you, Allison, for completely lowering the expectation, tempering my excitement, bringing me from here to about here. And I would love to stand here this morning and, and tell you, that she was wrong, but she was right. See, here's the problem. I, I'm, I'm a task-oriented person. I like order, I like structure, and I remember we were gonna leave on a Friday and I said to Jess, I have it planned out. I will wake up at 5.30, we will pack the remainder of our things. At 6.45, on the dot, our car will be loaded, we'll get the last couple of things. At 7 a.m., we'll be pulling out of our driveway. We'll be on our destination to Virginia to spend the night with some friends before we head to Tennessee for the rest of our trip. Here's a spoiler, it did not go that way. So it's nine o'clock, two hours, two hours after um, my plan, you know, was really falling, nine o'clock, we've not left the house yet. The task-oriented person in me is really struggling. I'm not doing okay at this moment. Finally, we get in the car, we start driving, we're on 295, we're about into Yardley, we're crossing the bridge, and Jess just says to me, hey, you got the pack and play, right? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Did you get the pack and play? No. So we turn around, <laughs> we grab the pack and play. We continue driving, and I'll put this gently, there are some discrepancies on the directions on how we should get to where we're supposed to go. Um, in layman's terms, Jess and I might have been fighting. Um, and so we're off track. We're a lot later than I'd like to be. And we stop for lunch and I just start laughing. And she's like, why are you laughing? I'm like, because this is a mess. This whole thing is a mess. And she says, just enjoy the journey. I'm like, what journey? We don't even know where we're going. 
We don't know where we're going. We're late to where we're going. How am I supposed to enjoy this? So I just laughed and I just said, man, this is a mess. Central, this morning, I believe for some of us, we came in the building and there are areas of our life where we might say, man, I've got a little bit of a mess on my hands. We might look at our family and we might say, man, my marriage is kind of a mess. My kids are kind of a mess. Maybe my finances are a mess. Maybe work is a mess. There could be a variety of things that we have going on that we would just look at and we would just say, man, I have a huge mess going on right here. As we dive into Ruth chapter three in a moment, this passage is actually a lot messier than a lot of people think. As you dig beneath the surface a little bit, you start to uncover the mess of really what's going on and how Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all really play a part in it. See, this morning, I'm confident that for each of us, we might have a little bit of mess, we might have a lot of mess, but our big idea this morning and where we're gonna go, I want you to know this. God is at work in our mess. God is at work in our mess. So for some of us, the mess might not even be our fault. It could be things happening around us. It could be somebody else's decisions that impacted us. For some of us, it's kind of the hard reality that the mess sometimes really is a result of decisions that we've made. Maybe we've got ourselves in a mess that we can't quite get ourselves out of. But here's the good news. No matter if you got yourself into the mess, if the mess is happening around you, God is working and he's present and he's active in whatever mess you find yourselves in today. So we're in Ruth chapter three and and I'm gonna give you a warning. We're gonna see some messiness in scripture today, but we're gonna see God work through this messiness with his people. So Ruth chapter three, starting in verse one. This takes place about six to eight weeks after the events of chapter two. It says this, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will explain to you what you should do. So as we get into the text this morning, we first see Naomi and I'm gonna say this probably several times this morning. Naomi, I really believe in, in this instance, has some good intentions, but really poor execution. In a number of ways, she has good intentions. She, she wants the best for Ruth, but her execution is not always the best. And, and I would even say you can applaud her good intentions because 
at the end of the day, I had a mentor years ago tell me, Chris, everybody needs a Paul, everybody needs a Barnabas, everybody needs to be like a Paul to a Timothy. See, everybody needs a Paul, everybody who needs someone who can speak some truth into our lives, who can point us to Jesus in all things, who will bring us along, who spiritually has our best interest at heart. And I would encourage you, if you've been at Central for a while, you're serving, you're a member, you are perfectly positioned to be a Paul to somebody's Timothy, to, to bring them along, to nurture them spiritually, to point them to Jesus. So we would say Naomi's intentions were good, but in a lot of ways, her execution, as we're gonna see this morning, was not great. So verse one said this, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you would be taken care of? See, this, this term rest in the Hebrew, really it speaks of the security, tranquility that really a woman in Israel would find rest in their husband. See, Naomi feels a certain kind of way about the events that have taken place about the sorrow they've experienced, about their grieving, maybe about being a little destitute, about things generally not going well. It says, you know, maybe, maybe you marry Boaz, maybe, maybe he's the redeemer you're looking for. One commentator put it this way, and I've, I've chewed on this all week, I've loved this. See, it's, it's a good intention Naomi encourages Ruth to find rest in Boaz, but she forgets, she forgets that Ruth can find rest in God himself. See, Central, this morning I wanna encourage you, find your rest in Christ. Find your rest in Jesus. See, here's what's fascinating about the Bible. Many in today's culture will tell you, man, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. It's not relevant to today. And man, it's garbage. The human heart, human nature has not changed. Since sin crept into the world, we have found rest in the wrong thing constantly. There are things we default to that aren't good for us. We find rest and hope and security in things that will ultimately let us down. We do it, Naomi is doing it here. See, Psalm 46, verse one reminds us, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. See, our rest is in him and in him alone. See, for some of us, we have a mess, and the mess can come when we find our rest in the things of this world. The, re the mess, it comes when we find our rest in the wrong thing. If we've learned anything over the past couple of months, over the past couple of years, it's really that nothing in this world is really certain. You know, maybe you've found rest in your financial security, and as you've gone to the pump, as you've gone to the grocery store, as the prices of things continue to rise and rise and rise, you're seeing that slowly kind of go away. 
Maybe you find rest in, in other ways. Maybe um, instead of really addressing problems at home in your marriage with your kids, maybe you numb with, with alcohol, with television, with binging on certain things so that you might ignore the circumstances around you. Maybe you even find rest in things that are pretty good. Jess and I have a friend um, who very recently, her and her husband went away on a vacation. She had a very successful career, just kind of kept getting promoted, promoted, promoted. Great relationship with her boss. Got back, flew in on an evening the next morning, came to work to find out that she no longer had a job. And she was just sharing with us I can't believe this happened. This was everything I worked for. In a lot of ways, this is who I am. This is what my adult life is. I don't really understand what's happening. See, we tend to find our rest in, in things that constantly change and not in the one thing that will never change. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he never changes, he's constant. At Central, this morning, he's where the rest is found. So we've gotten into the messiness of this passage, but here's a warning. It only gets messier from here. So Naomi has the plan that she then wants Ruth to kind of act on, and we're gonna see Ruth act on it starting in verse five. So it says this, so Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley and she came secretly, uncovered his feet and sat down. Here's, here's what's fascinating about the Old Testament. It's written in a culture that we do not live in today. So the temptation, if we're not careful, is to gloss over terms, is to assume meanings, is to say, I think it's talking about this and, and not really do the deep dive and not really dig a little deeper to what's going on. So we see twice in these first seven verses, both in Naomi's plan and in Ruth's execution, that she is to go to the threshing floor. Here's why this was not a great idea. In a lot of ways, Naomi puts Ruth in real danger. Threshing floors often lay on the outside of town. There was a good possibility that Ruth could have been abducted on her way to the threshing floor. Boaz could have taken offense as he woke up and discovered Ruth lying at his feet. It could have gone very poorly. Had Boaz not been an upstanding man, he could have taken advantage of her. And in the culture of that day, no one would have believed Ruth, probably not even Naomi. Central, think about this for a minute. Power dynamics existed even back then. Because again, the human heart 
human nature, we've not changed. Sin is still an issue and it's crept into every part of our lives. See, I, I truly believe that Naomi had Ruth's best interest, but her planning, her execution was terrible. See, Boaz would have more than likely been asleep guarding his grain. At this point, he would have woken up and seen Ruth there and, and, and been shocked, been in shock. We see the phrase uncovered his feet twice in these first seven verses. There are a variety of scholars who um, really debate the meaning of this term. There are, there are a small few that would say she undressed him, but the majority would not, would not say that. They would say, no, she uncovered his legs. What, whatever it is, it is not a great situation. Parents, as your kids grow older and you start to talk to them about dating, this is not a situation you would want your teenage son or daughter to be in. It's just not. Physical boundaries are, are getting pushed. It's just not a great situation for them to be in. We don't believe from the text that, that intercourse takes place here, but it's not a great situation. So in my notes this week, I wrote down this question as I was reading and studying and just examining the setting that's happening here. And I wrote down this question and I chewed on it for a while. How do we process and apply this scene in our day and age? What do we say about this? See, the Bible at times, it's prescriptive. So it's telling us what we should and should not do. And oftentimes it's descriptive. And this is a situation where it's descriptive. It's describing the scene, but it's not advising you and I on what we should do sexually. See, right now, I believe that for some of us, the mess, the mess is related to sexual immorality. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's giving ourselves access to things that we know we shouldn't have access to. Maybe it's an impure dating relationship. Maybe it's entertaining thoughts. Maybe it's not being faithful in covenant marriage. It can be a variety of things, but maybe that's the mess that we find ourselves in this morning. I've got some good news for you. In our darkness, in the parts of our lives that we keep hidden, that we're embarrassed to talk about, that we feel shame, regret, remorse over, in our darkness, God is present. See, Jesus doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't give up on us. When we have sorrow, remorse, shame, regret, he doesn't cast us aside. He actually moves towards us. That's the gospel. Not that our behavior is always perfect, but that Jesus always moves towards us. See, Ephesians chapter five, verse one and three, Paul writes about this. He says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love 
as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And then in verse three, he's gonna talk to us about how we are to deal with sexual morality in our lives. Says, but sexual morality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. There are some translations that say not even a hint of sexual morality. See, we have, a, we have a lie in our culture going on right now that says, man, Jesus is loving and so he would never tell anybody that they're in the wrong. He would never tell anybody that something is sinful. And I'm telling you this morning, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. It, it's just not. We see this morning, there is a command to be imitators of God because of what he's done for us. We're to remember the gospel, we're to remember Jesus' death, but then we are also to flee from sexual immorality. Naomi's grave error here is she sends Ruth into a situation that really could have been harmful and damaging for her. One of our high school leaders, her, her name is Deb. Deb said this to a group of students a few years ago and it, it stuck with me. She said, you know, when it, when it comes to physical boundaries and, and dating, you know where the line is, but you move away from it. You don't draw the line and then try and see how close you can get to it. You draw the line and, and then you move away. I had a mentor many years ago, and he would tell me, Chris, there are a number of men I've met with over the years, and we've talked about this. We've talked about struggles related to sex and lust and pornography. And we've talked and we've talked and we've talked, and then we would finish meeting, and I might see them later in the gym or the cafeteria, and I might hear how they're talking about the opposite sex in conversation. I might hear what they might be listening to, watching on television, all of those kinds of things. And I would gently encourage them, man, maybe you're giving the enemy a foothold by the way that you're speaking, the thoughts that you're entertaining, the things that you're watching. That it's far more than just an action. See, this mentor of mine, he, he gave a message on sexual sin years ago. And I remember afterward telling him, man, that was, that was your best message. I've heard you speak for years. That was your best message. And I'll never forget this. He said this to me, Chris, I'm able to speak on this because years ago, this was me. I was in something so deep, I thought I couldn't get out of it. I thought it was going to be like this forever. I thought I would always feel shame, always feel remorse, always feel regret. I thought I would never have joy. So there are days still even where I don't feel qualified to really talk on the topic. But central, this morning, God uses our mistakes and our sins and he works all things for good. He turns our tragedy into testimony. He makes our mess our ministry. 
And so this morning, I'm speaking to you very directly and very clearly. There is no freedom when you hide. There is only freedom when you confess. And so for some of us this morning, the most freeing thing you can do today is to get before God and just say, I'm in deeper than I ever thought I would be. It's to get around some Christian brothers and sisters and say, man, I've messed up more than I can imagine. I'm in deeper than I thought. But we know that James tells us when we confess our sins to one another, that we're healed. See, this scene, it's a mess. At times in some Christian circles, it's, it's almost made to be like a romantic story. And man, it's not like the hallmark tale of the investment banker from New York City and the farmer from Lancaster fall in love and they gotta save the family farm and spoiler, it works out in the end. It's not that. It's a lot messier than we ever thought it might be. Here's what's great though. This story, though it starts out not so great and though it gets really messy and really uncomfortable, it ends well. It ends well. So we pick it back up in verse eight. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? Um, let's just pause for a minute. I, I laughed pretty, pretty loud when I read that this week. I mean, just imagine, like he wakes up and somebody's just there, you know? Um, so he wakes up and discovers Ruth there, Ruth there in verse nine. And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You've shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. We learn a lot about Ruth and about Boaz in their character through this story. See, in this moment, Ruth, in verse nine, she makes her intentions known. She's not there for impurity. She makes her intentions known. And she says, you are a family redeemer. See, a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, we see it all throughout the book of Ruth. Um, it's a childless widow marrying her brother's husband to provide an heir for the dead husband. Again, it's, it's a culture we don't quite understand. But here's what you should know. This would be a reversal of fortunes for Ruth. Really, as we, as we think about her situation, it would be a reversal of fortunes. She would go from sadness, grieving, mourning, being destitute, 
to really finding some security. So she makes her intentions known. She's not there for the wrong reasons. But we see Boaz's character as well. See, see Boaz doesn't act on feelings. He doesn't act on emotion. He doesn't listen to his heart. In fact, he's faithful to the Old Testament law. See, he says in verse 12, yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. See, there, there was an order to these things. There was an order. So he, he's obeying the Old Testament scriptures in this. In verses 14 and 15, he protects Ruth's integrity. He sends Ruth away quietly. That way, you know, no one could come in and, and see her and say, man, what took place here? He protects her integrity. He protects her reputation. You see, we learn a lot about their character through this moment. And so for some of us, we might be saying, man, how, how do you process something like that? What might I do in that situation? And Central, I want you to know this. The gospel shapes our character. See, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's not just some facts that we agree with. It's not just a truth that we read in the Bible and say, man, I line up with that. I'm on the same page. There is an abundant life that Jesus is inviting us to live that shapes everything. That's one of the things that's amazing about the gospel. It's radical transformation. It's being able to look back and say, man, that's who I was, but that's not who I am. It's having victory over certain sins, doesn't mean that we don't default sometimes to some things that are not good, doesn't mean that there's not times where we backslide or, or any of those kinds of things. But the gospel, it, it shapes our character. It shapes our lives, our, our decision-making. This morning, are, are you putting Jesus first in everything? Is he first in your marriage? Is he first in your finances? Is he first in your friendships? Is he first at work? Is he first at home? Is he just first on Sundays? Is Jesus truly first in your lives? Paul writes this in Romans chapter six. As he talks about our growth in Jesus, he says this. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? See, he's asking a rhetorical question. Can we just do what we want and know that God will be cool. He'll be fine. And he says in verse two, absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? See, the thing about growing in Christ is that we start to look more like Jesus and we become a witness to the world. See, it's radical transformation. It, it what gives us the power to have self-control 
like these two did in this situation? Because the self-control doesn't come from us. It comes from the work of God in our own hearts. See, the mess that we find ourselves in, some of it comes from compartmentalizing. That we say, God, you can have this part of my life, but you can't have this part of my life. God, I'll come on Sundays, but you can't have my marriage. God, you can have this, but you can't have that. And it's very easy to put God in his box and to compartmentalize, but I would encourage you, that's when the mess starts to creep in. Central, I'm sure um, many of you are like me. You've been keeping up with the NBA Finals this week. And I remember after watching game one, the Warriors had a big lead after the third quarter. Boston makes this epic comeback in the fourth and they end up taking game one. It's a huge surprise. Reporters end up interviewing Draymond Green after the game, which depending on your allegiances and who you're a fan of, you either love or extremely hate Draymond Green. We don't need to get into that now. But Draymond said this, and I loved this. He said, you know, we played really well for like 40 minutes tonight. Here's the problem. An NBA game is 48 minutes. So his team loses and a reporter asks him, hey, how'd it go? And he's like, we played really, really well for about 40 minutes. See, here's, here's what's interesting. Years from now, we won't look back and say, man, Golden State played a really good 40-minute game. It's like, no, they lost. They lost game one. But I would encourage you this morning, this is easy to do, to say, Jesus, I will do most of what you're telling me to do. God, I will give you some of my life. Jesus, I'm, I'm cool with this and I'm cool with, but you can't have this, you can't have that. We compartmentalize and we find ourselves in, in a giant mess. There's a missionary, his name's Hudson Taylor. And he was speaking to a group about the Great Commission. He was speaking to a group about taking the gospel to the world and really the urgency and the importance of that. And as he is speaking to this group, he said this quote, and it stuck with me. He said this, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So Hudson Taylor says this to a group as they're talking about the Great Commission and how the gospel might go out. But man, does it apply to every aspect of our lives. See, we can't say, Jesus, I'm cool with you in certain areas, but when it comes to sexuality, leave me alone. We can't say, Jesus, I'm cool with you in certain areas, but when it comes to our family, it's like, no, I, I make the decisions. When it comes to our finances, I make the decisions. Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He wants our whole heart, our whole lives. See, this morning, Boaz truly is a picture of Jesus. 
See, the goal this morning is not that we would look more like Boaz. The goal this morning is that we would look more like Jesus. See, Ruth, she's seeking a redeemer. But central, this morning, we have a greater redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ. Central, this morning, I know for some of us, we're in a mess. It's a mess bigger than we could have ever imagined. We have deeper regret and shame over some things than we ever thought we might have. But we have a greater redeemer. See, Ruth wants to be brought out of slavery, out of mourning. In Jesus, we're brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're, we're dead men, we're, we're brought alive. You've heard me say this before. The gospel, we bring nothing to the table. We, we come with empty hands. There, there's nothing in the transaction that we offer God. He, he does everything through the person of Jesus and just asks that we believe. If you're in a mess this morning, there's hope. There's a way out. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. And God, for some of us, the mess is even deeper than we ever thought. God, sin has crept in in a way that, that we ever, that's bigger than we ever thought possible. But this morning, we have a greater redeemer. This morning, we have a rescuer. This morning, we have a savior. And God, this morning, you're drawing people to yourself. So this morning, God, as we look at the messiness of this passage, we look at the messiness of our world, we look at the messiness of our lives, we thank you for being faithful, for stepping in, for never abandoning us, for always moving towards us, for always being for us. Jesus, we thank you for your constant love in our lives. And we ask all these things in your name, amen.